But I wonder, have you ever been made sick by the church? Has the church ever sickened you? Uh, I confess that uh, I read a story last week where the church sickened me. Um, let me give you a bit of background what the story is about. Uh, in immigrants between 1948 and 1971 from the Caribbean islands are, are referred to today, as has been in the news recently, as the Windrush Generation. Um, they were, they, the reason they were called that, the reason they're called that is the first ship that brought uh, immigrant workers from Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago and other islands uh, back in 1948 uh, was called the MV Windrush. So they're named after this, this boat that arrived. And they were invited over to be part of the workforce in the UK uh, with the labor shortages uh, after World War II. Um, But this week I read a story, uh, an account uh, of one lady called Sonia Williams who was a a young girl, a teenager, uh, during uh, that time and came over at that time. So she landed in the early 50s and she's in this article told of her experience. So uh, when she arrived, she found actually that the UK wasn't as welcoming a place as she'd hoped. Uh, In fact, there was a lot of racism. Uh, In fact, many of the boarding houses that they would have went to had signs up that said no dogs, no Irish, and no blacks. Uh, But that's the culture, and you maybe would expect that in the culture, but you would expect different in the church. But she went along to several churches, uh, and she tells of one in particular where she went along, and she uh, went along on a Sunday morning, she sat in the pew, and the person who was already sitting in the pew got up and went and sat elsewhere. At the end of the service, she was greeted by the the minister at the door uh, who shook her hand and encouraged her not to come back the following week. She persevered as she kept going to other churches and eventually did find a warm welcome and is part of a a worshipping church even today. But she, in this article, told uh, that many of her friends, especially many of the men, left the church uh, in disgust and never returned. You can't help but hear that sort of story and be sickened by the church. Well, what we see in this little final postcard from the Lord Jesus uh, to the church in Laodicea, we see that he is sickened uh, by what he sees in the church there. Just look at sentence number 16 again. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, that's, we've got the NIV translation here in front of us. I think the NIV have been trying to be too polite there. Spit. The word is literally vomit. Vomit. Vomit you out of my mouth. This is a church that made Jesus sick. Made Jesus sick. Why did they make him sick? We'll just glance back at sentence number 15. I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold, neither cold nor hot. And I wish you were either one or the other. Now, these are confusing words. What does Jesus mean here? Is he really saying, I wish you were warm and passionate or cold-hearted and despised me? Uh, I would really prefer that. 
That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It doesn't seem to make sense that Jesus would prefer cold-heartedness and rebellion over half-heartedness uh, towards him. Know that what, what Jesus is saying here, we, we begin to get the keys to understand it when we know a little bit about the situation, particularly the plumbing situation uh, in Laodicea, this ancient town uh, in modern, which is in mod- the ruins of which are in modern day Turkey. Um, in this city of Laodicea, it was built on a crossroads inland, was not a port, and it was not near a river. Uh, about uh, six miles to the north was uh, in the Lycos Valley was another city called Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was very famous because it had hot springs. And so crowds of people would have come from, from far and wide to, to bathe in these hot springs. Uh, a bit like a, people go to a spa today. You know, you have your muscles eased, maybe uh, healing powers of the water to soothe your arthritis pains. Uh, so crowds would have come to Hierapolis, hot and useful. But then uh, six miles to the east was another city called Colossae. Uh, where we get the letter Colossians, uh, the city of Colossae. And it was famous because it had uh, clear, perfect water, cool water. And people would have traveled for miles far and wide to drink the, think, Evian water uh, of the ancient world. And what we have in Laodicea is a situation where they've got no natural water. And so it was a very wealthy city, and what they did is they built this massive stone plumbing system, these pipes that took water from a few miles away and piped it into uh, Laodicea. The problem was, uh, as they piped the water in, it picked up some of the, the minerals from the stone. Uh, it's a warm country, and so in the pipes the water was heated up as it traveled along, And so by the time it arrived in Laodicea, it tasted foul and was lukewarm. And no one wanted to drink it. And so what we've got here is a situation where the water is completely useless. It is not any good for healing. It's not warm, not any good for healing. And it's not refreshing, it's repulsive. So this water is a bit like the tepid water that you let out of your your bath. Uh, or the day-old cup of tea that you happen to come across uh, in your office. Okay? But it's disgusting. It's useless. You don't want anything to do with that. And what Jesus is saying is, you, as a church, are like that. You're not passionate for me, and you have no passion for purity. And so you are useless. You are useless for the advancing of my kingdom. It's a devastating critique. This is the most severe letter that we have in the collection of seven that we've seen so far. Jesus has nothing good uh, to say about them. Literally, he's saying, you make me sick. You make me sick. And so as we approach this letter, it's not addressed, thankfully, it's not addressed to Strandtown Baptist Church. It's addressed to this church back then. But as we understand the principles, if we want to be a church that does not make the Lord Jesus sick, 
then we need to learn the lessons from this letter. We need to hear the warnings that he has to them and try to apply the principles to us. Three things I want to say. I want to look at the root of the problem. Why uh, do they make Jesus sick? Uh, We're going to look at the remedy for the problem. And then lastly, we'll look at the reward after the problem. Okay, so first, the root of the problem. Verse 17, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. Now, Laodicea was a very prosperous city. As I, as I said, it was at a crossroads of two, in fact, three major roads all met at Laodicea, both going north and south and east and west. And so if you were to travel east uh, out uh, towards India and do your trade out there, basically Laodicea was the end of the, was the, end of the Eurozone. Okay? You were leaving the sort of safety, security of the empire, and you might want to sort of bank your money or exchange your money in Laodicea. And so it was a major commercial banking center. Think Zurich of the ancient world. It was very, very wealthy. Um, In fact, it was so wealthy after a major earthquake, the major earthquake in the region in AD 60, when the city was all but destroyed, when they were offered government aid to rebuild the city, they said, no, thank you. We don't want your charity. We're going to do it ourselves. And they rebuilt the city even more beautiful than it was before. This was a a city where people were self-confident, were capable, uh, where they were self-sufficient. And what Jesus is saying there in sentence number 17 is like city, like church. Like city, like church. That self-confidence, that sense of we can do it ourselves, had crept into uh, the church there. This was a, a very successful church, as we hinted at last week. Well, this, is a, this is the mega church of the ancient world, huge congregation. Uh, it had magnificent buildings. It had a state-of-the-art website. Um, it had a car park that was full of German cars, Uh, It was the envy of all the other churches, and it had a pastor. It had a pastor, no doubt, who had written a bunch of books uh, and was really well-known and very slick. And so I want you to imagine the scene uh, as this book arrives, the book of Revelation. All the churches get all the book, by the way. That's important uh, because the themes that are here are developed later on. Uh, But as they get to their section then, as this letter is read out to the whole church, I want you to imagine the shock. Imagine the shock as the pastor gets to the part about Jesus vomiting them out of his mouth. Imagine the silence, the awkward coughing into their silk handkerchiefs that would have happened. Doesn't he know who we are? Doesn't he know how successful we've been? Doesn't he know all that we're doing? What we see here is the the danger. Jesus unpacks the danger uh, that they had fallen into. And it's the danger of self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. We do not need a thing. We do not need a thing. We are self 
self-sufficient. And their self-sufficiency seems to have come from, verse 17, their wealth, their wealth, their money. I think the wealth that Jesus is referring to here is their cash in the bank, uh, stock portfolio, uh, and property. If you were, if, uh, let's do a thought experiment. If I was to take you, walk with you down the Belmont Road after the service, and we're to go down the Belmont Road and go to the, ca- the hole in the wall machine, and you're to take out your plastic card, stick it in, type in your PIN, and select 50 quid, and press the, bush, the button cash and balance, right? You press that button, and up on the screen, pops the words insufficient funds how do you feel how do you feel at that moment would you feel mild panic how am I going to pay the bills if you don't have enough money don't you naturally feel insecure you naturally feel inadequate you naturally feel you're helpless but flip it around. Imagine we walk down the road, you put your little plastic card in the machine, type in your pin, hit 50 pounds, cash and balance, and the number now that flashes up on the screen is more than your entire year's salary. Now, how do you feel? How do you feel? I think you probably are tempted to feel pretty secure, pretty self-confident. We can manage. We've got no urgent needs anymore. Well, that's the temptation that these guys had given into. The temptation because of their wealth to trust in their wealth. To think, I am okay. I've I've both made it. I'm somebody because I have money. And I'm secure because I have money. It's ironic in America that on the back of the dollar bill, uh, it says, in God we trust. It's ironic because if you pile all those dollar bills up, you're more inclined to trust in the money than in God. And it's the same for a pound note. It's the same for a pound note. The more we have, the more inclined we are to trust in those things for our significance and our security than to trust in God. And I think this is a temptation for us as a local church. Now, Strandtown Baptist, we, because of God's goodness, because of your generosity, uh, we've been able to clear our debts last year, which is wonderful. And it means we can begin to make plans for the future, but there's a big danger with that. It's a big danger with having a bank account in the black. The danger is we're tempted to, to rely on that and feel that things are going okay and we don't need to urgently, passionately rely on God for our success. We've got this. We've got this. We're, we're okay. We'll just go ahead with our plans. Jesus is saying that that is a sickening attitude to him. That's a sickening attitude to him. How do you know, how would you, what would be some of the signs that you have maybe been, you've slipped into thinking like the Laodiceans? We don't need a thing. We are okay here. Thank you very much. Well, one of the the key symptoms would be you cease to see the urgency and necessity of prayer 
in your own life, personally, and in the life of the church. And I think as a church, I can't comment on what you do in the privacy of your own bedrooms and wherever you choose to pray, but I think I can make some comments about the, the, the prayerfulness of us as a congregation. As I have organized various meetings and prayer meetings and been as part of uh, home groups, I think we do, we are lacking in our sense of urgency and priority in terms of our corporate prayer life together. And we can't expect God to bless what we're doing uh, or to guide us in what to do if we're not urgently seeking him and feel our need for him. Secondly, if we're, if we're slipped into Laodicean thinking, we're going to cease to have making the good news about Jesus known to other people as a priority. That's going to drop off the radar. We're also going to not feel a sense of urgency, compassion, sensitivity to those who are in need around us. We, we've done well. Why have we done well? Because we've worked hard. I've done well because I've worked hard. Why are other people not doing well? Well, it must be that they haven't worked hard. Without a thought for their background, without a thought for the particular circumstances of their lives, hard-hearted. You see, it's so easy for us to slip into the self-sufficient attitude of the Laodiceans. They were self-sufficient, caused by their wealth. We are wealthy. You might not feel wealthy, but we're wealthy. If you have two taps in your house with flowing cold water, two taps, all of us have way more than two, you're in the top 10% of the richest people in the world. You may not feel rich, but you are rich. This is directed to us. This is a real danger for us. Self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency leads to a second danger, however. The second danger is self-delusion. Self-delusion. Verse 17 again. But you do not realize, you don't even see it, that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were in um, Victoria Square, and there was a big queue stretching almost out the door, uh, and we, we came to the front of the queue from a slightly different angle, and we saw that they were queuing up for X-Factor auditions. So I don't know if any of you were in the queue. Uh, if you, I hope it went well, if you were, uh, but I didn't see it. Uh, but you, you know, because we've watched shows like that before, that there's some folks who are just self-deluded. Don't we? We know that's it's, it's the fun of the TV, isn't it? It's just this cringe-worthy, awful goodness of it all, uh, where they 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 are interviewed, maybe, uh, and who, who's been your influences, and who do you think you're like? Yeah, I'm like I'm like I'm like uh, Whitney Houston uh, or Adele, or yeah, I think I, I think I'm a bit more like Michael Jackson, whatever. Uh, and then they open their mouth, and they're horribly exposed. You know, the, the crowd is laughing. The judges are cringing. Uh, But the worst of them, the worst of them, are those who continue to be self-deluded after they're exposed. They're not the worst. Who get cross when they're criticized. But my mom told me I was good. 
You'll see. You'll see when I get a record deal. It's sad. It's sad. Doubly sad. Because they can't see it. And that's what happens when we become, we give in to the idea that we are self-sufficient. We become self-deluded. We delude ourselves. You see, money gives us the delusion. It's not real. It's the delusion that we are in control. Well, we're not in control. We're not in control even of our own bodies. Money gives us the sense that we can provide for ourselves. Money gives us the foolish notion that we can comfort ourselves. But Jesus says, wake up. You have lost touch with reality. You've lost touch with reality. You're pitiful, poor. They may be spiritually wealthy, wearing all the the, the most fashionable clothes, uh, having the most fashionable chariot or whatever it is they bought. Um, But spiritually, they're poor towards God. You haven't invested for eternity. You're poor. You are blind. You can't see reality clearly. You're so focused on the here and now, on the acquisition of money and stuff, your personal comfort now. You're blind to what's truly important. Blind. And you're naked. You're naked. Again, wearing the most fashionable clothes. But they're just not aware that God sees past their outer respectability. He sees their lack of passion. He sees their lack of purity. They are exposed before him. You see, they're self-deluded. And this self-sufficient attitude, which comes from their wealth, which has led to their self-delusion, makes Jesus sick. Why does it make Jesus sick? Why does their lack of passion and lack of passion for purity make Jesus sick? Quite simply because Jesus gave everything. He held nothing back. He gave it all for them. He gave his life. He went all the way to the cross. Dying in pain and suffering and agony. Bearing the penalty for their selfishness and sin. And for that sort of sacrifice to be met with apathy, well, it's just flat out insulting. We see first the root of their problem, self-sufficient attitude that comes from their wealth that has led to them becoming self-deluded. And I think that's a challenge we need to explore our own hearts today. Is that what I'm like? Is that what I'm like? Second, then, the remedy for the problem, the remedy for the problem. Um, I think those of us who tend to be legalists, who tend to just tell me, look, what I need to do, tell me what to do and I'll do that, um, would expect a different answer than the answer Jesus gives to the solution for this problem. We might expect, well, look, if it, all, if it all is coming, if the problem is stemming from them having lots of money, then surely the solution's really clear. Empty your bank account. Give all your money away. Isn't that that's easy? Just that done then. But of course, the problem's far deeper than that. The problem's not what you have externally. The problem is in our hearts. We need our hearts and the loves in our hearts reoriented. Uh, and reordered. And so what we need, ultimately, and here's the answer, what, what do we need 
if we suspect that we have become lukewarm, if we are lacking in passion, if we are lacking in a desire for purity, what do we need? Ultimately, the answer is simple. We need Jesus. We need a person. We need a person. Uh, Jesus says, be earnest. Be earnest. Verse 19, be earnest and repent. Uh, One uh, modern translation for this phrase uh, goes like this. uh, Up on your feet, about face, and run after Jesus. I think that's a pretty good translation of what's going on there. Up on your feet, about face, and run after Jesus. Because the biblical idea of repentance is not you got to shape up. You've got to try harder. You've got to turn over a new leaf. Because we could never do any of those things left to ourselves. Now what we need is we need to return to a person. Come back to Jesus. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, however lukewarm you, you are, for however long it's been that way, what's the solution? Come back to him. Because he says, I want to I clean you up. I want to sort you out. I want to renew your life. I will do it for you. It's not what you do for him, but it's what he wants to do for us. We need him. And particularly we need two things that he gives us. Two things that he gives us. One in verse 18, one in verse 20. First, we need his provisions. We need his provisions. I counsel you to buy from me. Come to me. Come back to me. Uh, and Jesus is presenting himself here a bit like a, a market trader. A market trader. Uh, Laodicea was a hustling, bustling market town. If you were to walk down the main street, there would have been lots of stalls, people shouting uh, to, to, to invite you over to, to sell their wares. You know, oh, best veg in the Lycos Valley over here. Um, two for a pound. Uh, Two for the price of one, all these clamoring voices, and yet there's one clamoring voice over them all. Uh, The words of the Lord Jesus, I counsel you, buy from me. Come, buy from me. And what is he giving us? What's he offering us? Well, he's offering three things. First, gold refined in the fire. Gold refined in the fire. What does that mean? Again, they were... uh, a materially wealthy people. Their bank balances were full. They had loaned lots of property, no doubt. And yet they're poor towards God. What does money do for us? Money gives us that sense of, I am important because I have made it, because I have a big bank balance. And it gives us that sense of security. But again, that's a delusion because there's no security in money. Markets can go up and down. Thieves can break in and steal And even if you do manage to hold on to it all, you can't take it with you when you die. Jesus is saying, look, let me give you true riches. The riches of a relationship with God that will make you secure forever. Forever. Being able to face the future properly without any fear and knowing that you are truly valuable because he loves you. Gold refined in the fire, white clothes. Laodicea, but Leah was was famous for its black wool. They they bred black sheep up on the hills, uh, and when they sheared their soft black wool, they wove it into a black cloth that was famous throughout the ancient world. 
And so they were, no doubt, if you had a black robe from Laodicea, you'd really made it. And yet Jesus is saying, no, 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 let me give you a white clothes. Let me give you white clothes. Clothes that speak in the rest of the book of Revelation, speak of purity. That speak of being fit for and acceptable in the presence of God himself. The idea of he's going to clothe their shame, cover their shameful nakedness. We've all got it wrong. We've all got it wrong. We can't, we, we try to grasp for fig leaves to cover ourselves and make ourselves look respectable, but it doesn't work. To be acceptable before God, we need Jesus to give us the gift of his righteousness, to make us clean and acceptable before God. And thirdly, I salve. Uh, there was a medical school as well, the commentators tell me, a medical school in Laodicea. And they came up, they produced what was called Phrygian powder. Okay? You put it in water and make a paste and put it on your eyes. It was like the ancient equivalent of Optrex. Uh, I'm sure there are other eye drop brands out there, but I can't think of any right now. Uh, so it was an eye salve. It was to help soothe pain in your eyes and help you see clearly. Jesus is saying, you're not, you're not, you're not seeing clearly, are you? You're so focused on the things of this world, consumed with the here and the now and the gathering stuff for yourself, that you don't, you don't even see what's important. Come to me. Let me give you eyes to see. And ultimately, if you trust me, I'll give you eyes to see God face to face. Wonderful promises, aren't they, what he offers us. And I think there's deliberately, a, a, Jesus is echoing the prophets here. I think he's echoing Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, when Isaiah 55 verse 1 says, Come you who have no money, come, buy and eat. You see, it sounds like when Jesus is saying, come to me and buy, that we've got to hand over something. We've got to give him something in return. But actually, this is not the, the, the stall that Jesus has, the shop that Jesus has, is not the, the high-end boutique in Kensington that actually be quite proud been seen in, at least some of you. think, yeah, I shop here all the time. Uh, no, what, what we have here, the shop that Jesus has is far more like the food bank. And you go there and you can get provisions for free and there's certainly no sense of pride in being there because you're only there when you say I'm in desperate need of your charity for me that's what Jesus is offering these things freely without cost why because he's already paid for them he's already paid for them he paid for them on the cross on the cross he took our shame he took our shame Dying naked on a cross. He died in darkness. Not able to see. Um, and he lost everything. Lost his life. Lost uh, his uh, sense of the Father's love. That he enjoyed from all eternity. He gave everything for us. He paid the price so that these things then can be ours. <laughs> it's amazing. He offers us first his provisions. Come back to me. Let me give you these things. And then it's more than that though. Because 
Christianity is about a relationship with a person. It's about a relationship with a person. It's not fundamentally what we get from the person. We get to know Jesus personally. Look at verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come uh, in and eat with him and he with me. What Jesus wants us to enjoy when we come back to him is a sense of his personal presence and a sense of the reality of his love on our hearts. That's what he wants for us. That's what he wants to give us. Now, these words in verse 20 have often been used, certainly in tent missions and various things, they've been used as the appeal to those who are not yet Christians. Come, let Jesus into your life. Um, And look, I I think they can be used that way. I really do. I think that is a legitimate application. And so if you're here this morning and you do not yet know Jesus personally, then I want you to hear his invitation to you this morning. His invitation to you. How do you know when Jesus how do you know when Jesus is knocking at your door? How do you know that? Verse twenty. I stand at the door and knock. What does knocking, the knocking of Jesus sound like if anyone hears my voice and opens the door? How do you know Jesus is knocking? Jesus knocks as we listen to his word, as we listen to his word, which we have in the scriptures. He makes his appeal to us by making these words come to life. And so if you're here this morning and you have been listening, maybe you've been coming over this series and you've been listening for a while and you think, do you know what? I think this is true. I think Jesus really did live and die and die for me on the cross. I think he really did rise again. I think that's historically true and intellectually credible then please respond to him. Please respond to him. Let him in. Let him into your life. He wants you to know him and to love him and to serve him. But the way this, uh, in the original context, however, this, these words weren't given to those who are not Christians. It was given to Christians. Christians who had drifted, drifted away. It's a shocking thought, isn't it? That we could be busy. That we could be busy doing lots of stuff so focused on life, but, and perhaps even doing lots of stuff within the church, a busy church, and yet Jesus is outside. He's no part of it at all. And the challenge then for us is, have we drifted? Have we drifted? Have we closed some doors on the Lord Jesus and saying, actually, you're welcome in this part of my life, but actually, to be honest, the door's closed to this part. We don't really want you messing around there. I kind of like the way that that is at the minute. Well, the challenge for you then, the challenge for me as I listen to that, is to think, are there any areas of my life where I've closed the door? Is Jesus wanting to come in uh, and to clean it out and to rearrange it? The remedy for the problem of self-sufficiency is to come back to the Lord Jesus again. Uh, to accept his provisions and enjoy a personal relationship with him 
uh, by his spirit through his word. And then lastly, and very, very briefly, uh, the reward after the problem, the reward after the problem. You see, the temptation is uh, we are tempted to rely on the money that we have for our identity and our security. But what we begin to see here as we read this carefully is that money can't compare to Jesus. Money can't compare. Why would you trust in money and what it can, and what it can offer in compared to the Lord Jesus? Because how much does he offer you? What does he offer you? Well, we see it in these verses. First, in verse 14, uh, in the description that he gives, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the ruler of creation. Uh, we've seen all the way through that uh, Jesus describes himself in a different way in each one of these postcards, uh, and it's, each one is appropriate for the church that he's writing to. And it's the same here. Uh, now, you're going to have to do a little bit of hard work for, with me for a moment to figure out what is going on here. Okay, so you might get, need to get your thinking cap on. Um, this phrase, this description of Jesus being the Amen, uh, this is only used uniquely here in all of the, the New Testament. It's a unique description of the Lord Jesus. Uh, amen simply is a, it comes from the Hebrew word just meaning true, true. He's the true one, um, which is why at the end of prayers we say, Amen, let it be true, make it be true. Um, Jesus is then described as the faithful and true witness and the ruler of God's creation. Now, I think the NIV is a wonderful English translation of the Bible, uh, and more often than not, it gets it absolutely right. However, they are a bit out on a limb on this one, uh, the ruler of of creation. If you've got another Bible, any other Bible, any other English Bible that I know of, and I've searched as many as I can this week, uh, it will be translated something like the beginning of God's creation. Okay? The beginning of God's creation. And what is going on here? How are we meant to understand this? Well, as we've seen all the way through, if you want to unlock the meaning of Revelation, you look first in the book. Are there any clues for you to help you? And if you can't find it there, where else do you go? The Old Testament. Let's go back to the Old Testament. So you begin to look. Wonders God been described as an Amen ever mentioned before in the Bible? And it is only one time. Only one time is God described as the Amen, the true God. And it's there in Isaiah 65, verse 16. Um, where we read these words, whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the one true God, literally God, the Amen. And whoever takes an oath in the land will swear by the one true God, God, the Amen. Okay? This language of taking an oath or swearing, that's, that's the language of the law court, isn't it? I, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Okay? It's the language of taking an oath in the law court a faithful witness and then God will guarantee their testimony if they the truth of their testimony if they take his name and swear by him uh, in that way but then in the very next verse in the very next verse uh, Isaiah predicts a day 
that is going to come when courts and witnesses and judges will no longer be necessary ever again. A day when there's only truth, where there's never sin or crime ever again. Verse 17c, I will create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Okay, so with the idea of God the Amen, with the idea of a faithful witness, and the idea of a new creation, the beginning of something brand new. Now with those ideas, come back to Revelation chapter 3, where we see Jesus described as uniquely the Amen. He's the divine one. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the one who tells us the truth about who we are and about who God is. And he is the beginning of God's creation. The beginning of the new creation. That's who he is. Think of a block of flats. You know, there's lots of building going on in Belfast at the minute. Down in the center, imagine there's a big block of luxury flats being built. Uh, the cranes are up, but finally they, they, are, they all are finished and look perfect. And at some point, the first occupant moves in, don't they? The first, there's got to be a first one somewhere. So the first occupant moves in. And he is the first member of a new community. A first member of a new community. And because he's moved in, that also indicates the flats are finished or about to be finished and lots of other people are just about to move in. But you have a first member of this new community. And because of the Lord Jesus' death and his resurrection and ascension that we read about in chapter 1, he is the first member of a brand new community. And he is the indication that this new creation, where there will be no more sickness and no more death and no more sadness and no more sin anymore, is about to come. If you trust in him and you listen to his testimony, his witness, and trust it, trust his promises... You can, you can have a guaranteed place in his new community, in the new heaven and the new earth. And that's something that simply money cannot buy. What does Jesus have to offer? Infinitely more than what you can purchase with a, with a checkbook or with a plastic card. It's amazing, isn't it? The reward is the reward of the new creation. And then lastly, at the very end... In verse 21, we read these words, And to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. As, as evangelical Christians, we tend to sort of boil Christianity down, reduce it down to its bare minimum. It's about me being forgiven for my sin. And that's wonderfully true, and that's what's on offer, of course, but Christianity is way more than that. It's way more than that. You actually get to be part of an amazing story. The story of what God is doing. How he created the world. We messed it up. And through Christ he is restoring and, uh, and rebuilding it. And we actually get to be part of that wonderful restoration project. 
We get to play our part. We get to share in his rule and authority. I don't know what that means, but at the very least it means we're part of God's universe restoring project. You see, Christianity is more than just you and God. It's about you being plugged into a, a big story and a brand new community. And so as we come to the end of our series of letters, uh, one phrase that comes at the end of every letter that we've not picked up on, uh, at least not very clearly, is this little phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we listen to God's word, we should be expecting God to speak to you personally, to speak to you, to ask you, uh, to, to challenge you, to cause you to examine your life. And if you think and suspect, maybe, that you've become lukewarm, lacking in passion for God, lacking in a desire for purity, then what should you do? What is the Spirit calling you and me to do this morning? Well, it's to turn back to the Lord Jesus. He's only a prayer away. He's only a prayer away. He's not walked off on a huff because we've ignored him. Wonderfully, he's so much more gracious than us. Uh, He's only a prayer away. And when we talk to him, we can know intimacy with him now and an eternal reward that will never end. Let's take some time just to respond in prayer.